It's a hole in the it ground. It doesn't sound good, whatever it is. <laughs> it's a hole in the ground with sticks laid across it. And then somebody cuts a hole in those sticks, and you squat over that hole and aim. And some people have terrible aim, right? There's no walls. There's no ceiling. So I try to do my business in the evening mm-hmm. just so I don't attract so much attention, right? And <laughs> I wake up in the middle of the night in Ethiopia. It's rainy season, so it's raining. And my stomach is toe up. So I got to the pit latrine. And we've joked for years about falling in, right? I just gave it away, didn't I? (laughs) So I get out over these sticks, trying to keep the rain off my head, right? With my big wide brim hat, pull my pants down, start to squat. And just as I squat, and the floor is collapsing. And I lunge for the, you know, for the mud. Uh huh. And splat. I'm going to turn the vibration thing off too because that's really. Now I'll only get alarms. Somehow it'll still. They're out to get us. They're out to get us, yeah. Okay. It's a plot to uh, take away our sanity. (laughs) I think so. It's, it robs you of every moment of peace. Something like that. So, like, I've even noticed that, you know, like if, if I'm sitting out on the back porch just having a glass of iced tea or my coffee in the morning, that my, my brain is racing mm-hmm. with projects and stuff. Mm-hmm. So the idea of like um, meditation where you, where you clear your mind that's an impossibility for me. So meditation for me, and I think biblical meditation is you, you meditate on a passage. You think about that passage, so you, you begin to conform those thoughts to that passage and that racing mind, you know, yeah. you don't just, there's no way I could clear my mind. I mean, that's, that's yeah. not something I will ever be able to do. <laughs> but I could focus on a passage. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and meditate on that. Yeah, so, yeah. But. Well, even even some people who are into clearing their mind of everything would say that that's a means to the end of being available in the present moment. Mm. Like it's not clearing just for clearing's sake. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's in order to be available, you know, whenever the phone rings, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, um. So yeah, you mentioned first responding. What what's how did that start for you? What was Yeah, well when I was a kid, I wanted to be a firefighter uh-huh. or a cop or in the Air Force or something, you know. I mean, I I think a lot of of kids want to you know, do those kind of jobs because they're exciting and you know, at least when I was a kid, we all looked up to them. Uh-huh. And um then I just kind of got away from that as I got older and then, you know, really felt called to be a missionary. And, um, you know, I'd never heard of a missionary firefighter, <laughs> right? So, or There's first responder. There's got to be one of them out there somewhere. Well, I, you know, actually, <laughs> you know, as a chaplain, I am kind of a, a missionary, you know, first responder. Yeah. But um, it was after Atlanta's cardiac arrest that that I really got into the first responding and it was 
for me, it was it was therapeutic because I was having panic attacks. Um, three o'clock in the morning, which is when she died, was three o'clock in the morning, and I'd wake up and I would, you know, be panicked. And mm-hmm. I, I guess I should insert here that she actually survived. You know, <laughs> so she she was clinically dead, but she was resuscitated. But um, through that whole process of her cardiac arrest and dialing 911 and having someone talk me through CPR, uh, EMS arriving, the fire department arriving, the police department arriving, uh, and just watching them do what they're trained to do and, and realizing that God used them to, to save Lana's life. Uh, it was amazing. And while we were in the hospital um, with her recovering, um, I got to reading about first responders, and I, I read a statistic that um, one of the highest suicide rates for vocation was in EMS and fire service and police. Because they see so much They deal with stuff. a lot, yeah. yeah. And it, it, to me, it was kind of weird. I'm like, well, if you see death all the time, why would you kill yourself? I, I would yeah. think it would cause you to have kind of the opposite reaction. So I didn't really understand that, but... But I, my heart really went out to them because um, here they saved my wife's life, and um, and then you know they're human beings, and so they're struggling too, and emotionally and spiritually. And so I actually began uh, pursuing uh, chaplaincy before first responding. So I wanted to be a, a chaplain for EMS, and uh, because I didn't have a medical background, they weren't really interested in me. So I. Um, called the city fire department and they actually have a chaplain and um, he's actually a paid part of the department and he works in the training uh, division you know so that was kind of a dead end I talked to the folks who are in charge of the chaplaincy for the police department in Jackson and uh, the sheriff's department Mm -hmm. and it didn't really seem to be what I was after and somebody said, "Well, you should call uh, Chief Turner with the County Fire Department." I didn't really know anything about the County Fire Department at the time, but I, I called, and Chief Turner said, "Well, can you can you come talk to me and uh, to our Fire Marshal Don Friddle uh, tomorrow?" And I'm like, "Sure." And so I went out to the main station and um, had a conversation with them, and they said, "We've actually been praying that God would send us a new chaplain because our chaplain has." you know, resigned. And so I'm like, well, you know, here I am. <laughs> so, um, so I actually became the chaplain before I even became a first responder. So I was okay. officially a member of the department, but I was not trained as a firefighter or um, a medical responder or anything like that. And then... Um, so as a chaplain, you're, you deal specifically with the firefighters themselves kind of serving them that's really is that, is your, that how that yeah, works your primary focus is the is the firefighters the first responders which is really w- what i was wanting to do uh-huh. was to to serve the guys who had served my family you know right um we do actually you know work with victims some but really that's more the area of the red cross or the local churches you know okay. that reach out uh, I will, you know, if I'm at a house fire, I'll, I will ask the person if they're there 
you know, if they're involved, if they worship somewhere, that's an easy way. You know, if they're Jewish, they're Muslim, they're Christian, if you say, you know, is there somewhere you worship? Mm-hmm. Um, instead of saying, you know, do you go to church? You know, it's, yeah. is, there, is there somewhere you worship? And I'll just make sure that their pastor, priest, rabbi, imam, whatever, is aware that their house has burned and just kind of direct them back to their church. Um, and like I say, Red Cross, you know, is we'll, we'll call Red Cross for victims of fire and flood and things like that. But, you know, who are you going to call? For the first responders, and and first responders are a pretty tight knit group, and you really have to be one of them to minister to them. You know, it's not impossible, uh, and and a lot of the firefighters are members of local churches, so it's not like I'm the pastor of the firefighter church. You know, right? Um, and you know, some are, are believers, but maybe they're not involved in a church because of the weird schedules that we keep and stuff like that. But um, uh, anyway, through being the chaplain for the fire department, um, I was made aware that, you know, the county has a first responder, first responder uh, medical uh, responders. So actually it's called EMR, it's Emergency Medical Responder. Um, <clears throat> pretty big program for that. Um, and I thought, well, I, I do have time to take that training. And, and here's the cool thing about it. Uh, in that training, the, the person who does the training for the fire department is also a nurse paramedic with EMS. And part of our training is we ride along with EMS. So here I was wanting to be like a chaplain to EMS, and now I'm working with EMS, you know, and training with yeah. EMS. Yeah. Um, and I'm a volunteer, unlike, you know, EMS in Madison County's. It's all paid um, through um, West Tennessee, you know, healthcare. Um, but I'm a volunteer, so I show up to help these guys just on my own volition, right? So I'm not getting paid to be, a, you know, there with them or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of cool the way that all came full circle. So I ended up, you know, um, working with firefighters and medical responders. And in that county department, we've got 17 stations and, you know, a couple hundred members that, that man, you know, man those. We don't really man the station, but we're, we're assigned to stations and we work from those stations. But uh, there are only a handful of actual full-time firefighters in the county. Um, but anyway. Yeah. That's how I got started doing it was okay. through Lana's cardiac arrest. Yeah. And that ended up being my therapy. <laughs> so I could, I started sleeping at night after I took the uh, CPR class. Um, I went home that night, went to bed, and realized the next morning that I had not, I didn't wake up in a panic, you know. Mm. Wow. And that's been about, it's been over four years ago. And I've worked several cardiac arrests since then. So I am, I am really good at CPR, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good life skill. Yeah, I mean, I can I can do those compressions. So, so that's kind of counterintuitive to me. When when you think of some kind of you know post traumatic experience, you would imagine someone trying to get away from trauma as a way to cope, but you're actually running to it. You're immersing yourself in in these really high stress environments, partly if I'm understanding you correctly, partly to 
a, as a coping mechanism, if, if I'm understanding you correctly. Yeah. So how does that work? I mean... It's messed up, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily. Not necessarily, because I think... I mean, I think the answer isn't to run away from things. Yeah, well... So, so they say if you're if you're scared of snakes, you should go to the pet store and handle a snake, or you know, or go to the Memphis Zoo and go into their um, snake exhibit. You know, so mm-hmm. so you need to face those fears. And um, when I talk to my doctor about you know the waking up in the middle of the night and things like that, he he basically diagnosed me with PTSD. Right, okay. I'm like. But I'm not a soldier, you know. I thought right. that was something that happened to soldiers. And he goes, "Well, no, it's anybody who's been through a traumatic event." I'm like, "But my wife survived." And he goes, "But was it traumatic?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah." I mean, yeah. yeah. So um, I didn't know how, you know, how do you face how do you face cardiac arrest? I mean, that's just not something you can go to the store and say, you know, can you open your cardiac arrest tank and let me handle that? You know. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. Um, uh, but it does. I mean, it may not work for everybody that way, right? But um, you know, it does. It does for me. I, it's 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 weird. I mean, I uh, my wife has an internal defibrillator now, so if her heart were to stop again, um, you know, her or actually before her heart would stop, it would get a little shock, speed it back up or slow mm-hmm. it down. So, you know, the, the chances, put that in quote, the chances of her having another cardiac arrest are pretty slim because that, that um, defibrillator would get her back in rhythm before her heart arrests. And you could have told me that. The doctor told me that. I knew that. I could see it under her skin. You know, it was a big lump uh, on her chest where that defibrillator is. But I could not sleep. Hmm. It's still, I mean, I would, I would wake up in a panic. And I knew that was irrational, right? Because I'm going, um, you know, if her heart slows down, it'll speed it up. I know that. So why am I waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning? Um, but through responding to these calls, particularly with a cardiac arrest, um, you know, I didn't know what I was doing the first time. When she had her cardiac arrest, I had a 911 operator talk me through it. I mean, I had taken a class when I was a kid, but does anybody remember how to do CPR from taking a class 20 years ago? And uh, he just real, real calmly, he said, you know, I want you to do this. I want you to, you know, put your hands like this, put them in, you know, on, on her uh, sternum there, and I want you to do compressions. Don't worry about the breathing. I want you to count out loud so I can hear that, you, you know. So he was so calm and talking me through that, um, and that's real. That's really how I learned. The first first responder is the nine one one operator, and um, they're kind of the unsung heroes because mm. they they get to hear the worst stuff, right? You know. Um, but then, um, and probably feel like they're not helping as much as they want to. Well, I even mean, though they I really are. Yeah. How. Um, how heart-wrenching it would be to hear someone screaming, you know, my, my baby's not breathing, my baby, you know, right. and, and you know, help is on the way, you know, and you can talk them through things to do, but you can't physically assist them, you know. And, I mean, we've, I've, I've been to plenty, call, plenty of calls where, um, you know, there really wasn't physically anything we could do. I mean, it, when it's too late, it's too late. We still give it a shot. Right. You know, 
But, um, um, and I think that, that I, I don't know, I don't know the psychology behind it, right? I kind of wish I did, or maybe I don't. But, um, you know, working these, these uh, crisis events, 98.6% of the time, a cardiac arrest victim is going to stay dead, right? But there's this chance, this one point, you know, four percent chance that you're going to get them back and uh, i've seen it you know that happened to my wife she was the 1.4 percent that made it and it's miraculous i'm I'm, even even statistically you know i mean you say well everything happened just perfectly the the ems unit was close to the house i started cpr immediately but even the folks who are resuscitated the majority of those folks suffer um uh, like neurological damage from lack of oxygen right. oxygen to the brain and things like that. So, so of well, the we people can, who survived, we can get more into details of that story. But she was she was without oxygen for how long? I, we don't really know. Okay. Um, it, what happens when somebody has a cardiac arrest? It's not like Hollywood at all, right? Um, if if you were in Hollywood and you had a cardiac arrest, they would just shock you and bring you back to life, right? Right. right. That ain't how it works. Uh, with a cardiac arrest, the first thing that happens um, is is that your heart stops beating, right? So therefore, the cardiac arrest. Well, when your heart stops beating, your brain is deprived of oxygen, right? So then your body begins to gasp for 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 air to to get oxygen to the brain. But um, when you're when you're gasping, it's called agonal breathing. The air is going into the lungs, but the oxygen's not getting past the lungs because there's no circulation of blood. So as that as that deprivation of oxygen begins to affect the brain, um, you may see something that's kind of like a seizure, or, or you know, or maybe some thrashing about, mm-hmm. and then then the person will become you know lifeless. And it, it was during that agonal breathing, that gasping. Uh, that I woke up that night with Lana. So her, it's reasonable to assume that her brain was already suffering from a lack of oxygen for her to be, you know, gasping like that and, and the thrashing. So her heart had been stopped, but I don't know how long, right? Um, then she just became deathly still, and I turned the lights on, um, one of her eyes was open and, and fixed. <laughs> the other eye was closed and her lips were blue. Um, so how long technically she was without oxygen to her brain, I don't know. I do know that if you don't resume circulation within seven minutes of your heart stopping, that your brain dies. And it is possible to survive clinical death. Clinical death is your is when your heart stops beating and you stop breathing, you are clinically dead. But that doesn't have to be permanent. Um, but when your brain stops functioning, when, then, then you're, you're dead dead. There's probably a term for it other than dead dead, but you know, there's clinical death and then there's dead dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know how long she went without oxygen, but I mean, clearly... Uh, Today, I and mean, this has been um, five years ago, she has no neurological issues. 
Um, she has ulcerative colitis, and that's been in remission since the cardiac arrest. So, I mean, it's um, it's the closest thing I've ever seen to a true, bona fide, miraculous healing. Um, um, even though you know there is some science behind how she survived, um, so many things have to line up for that survival that it really is still miraculous, even for those who don't believe in divine intervention. I mean, why did I wake up? Why was there an EMS unit five houses down when when the page went out? So I, I had done less than 100 compressions before they were in my house, you know, and, and taking over. Um, you know, so there was a lot of miraculous things happening in addition to the stuff that we're trained to do. And um, anyway. <laughs> Sounds pretty miraculous to me. Yeah, well, and then, you know, the the rest of the story is even at the hospital, she was in a coma um, and woke up on the morning of the third day, um, which is significant yeah. to uh, to believers, you know, yeah. that um, and then um, after that, she had an internal bleed and she lost 16 units of blood, um, which is pretty much all the blood she had in her body. She bled up wow. into her abdomen. And um, the surgeon refused to do surgery to stop it because she was in such a weak condition and had lost so much blood. He said that if he were to cut her open, that he was, you know, there would be no chance for survival. Mm. So he he said what we needed was a spontaneous clotting of her artery. Spontaneous? Um, yeah, well, he's, that's that's te- technical term for miracle mm-hmm. you know it yeah, needs to what, miraculously yeah. stop bleeding yeah. right so so she had an, an arterial bleed into her abdomen you know um and this is something that they thought probably wouldn't happen that there would not be a clotting or well i mean again you know statistically speaking um she was on a lot of anticoagulants because of the uh um impeller device that they were using um, to, to try to amplify her heartbeats. And, you know, if your blood is not coagulating, then it's not going to clot. So for, for her blood to clot, you know, with all this anti-clotting stuff in her blood, um, you know, it's, it's not impossible, but it was not likely. And her doctor actually called me into the room and... Um, um, you know, let me stay there because uh, he wanted me to be there when she died. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but then I called Ethiopia and I told all the missionaries there, you know, what was going on and that we needed a spontaneous clotting. <laughs> and uh, they started praying for that. And the, the doctor said that um, when that prayer meeting started in Ethiopia, um, it, it was clear that her blood was beginning that that artery was beginning to clot because her vitals started creeping up and it was in that moment yeah oh yeah when yeah he said he said there was an atmospheric change in the room is the way he put it okay and this guy's not a christian yeah but he he said it was an atmospheric change in the room when the prayer meeting started Mm -hmm. and uh, he said that we had not experienced a medical miracle we had experienced a miracle miracle so this is coming from the doctor. From the doctor, yeah. who's not a Christian, okay. right? So, um, so there's another one. That, you know, there's dead, dead, and there's miracle, miracle, right? <laughs> so it's like bonafide. You're bonafide dead, or you're bonafide yeah. miracle, right? Yeah. So, 
Yeah, that's... Wow. <laughs> you had a real encounter with chaos there. Yeah, but, you know, and this is one of the things I think I, I wanted to talk about is, you know, I'm in my 50s now. And for me to say that I don't believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead would be... Um, I would be lying if I said that. It's like I, I feel weaker than I've ever felt um, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. Um, but I feel like my faith is stronger than it's ever been. And I mean, that, that, sounds, that sounds like, you know, well, wait, how could your faith be stronger if, if spiritually you feel weak? And I'm, um, that, again, counterintuitive. But it seems like for me, the more chaos that I am that I experience, and the more chaos I'm in, the more convinced I am that God is is real, and that He is very active. Um, I mean, I, I've I've been in the room with people who are dying a lot in the last five years, and I see people die, and and. And the response of those who witness it go, man, God was so present. And in that same room, other people say, God ain't within 100 miles of this place. And I'm like, I, so how can one person's faith be built through chaos and tragedy and another person's faith seems to be, I don't know if it's destroyed through it, but it doesn't, it doesn't come to the surface. And I'm not talking about like, oh, I don't cry about stuff. I cry right. more now than I ever have, you know? I'm not saying that it doesn't hurt. I'm just saying that at the core of who I am, I, I don't disbelieve anymore. I mean, I think I disbelieved more when I was younger. Like, you know, was Jesus like Santa Claus? And we're just, you know, we're just pacifying ourselves. And, you know, those, I don't even ask those questions anymore. Um, and I wouldn't say it's because I've seen so much miracle, although granted, you know, I've seen some pretty amazing stuff, but I've seen more natural death and things like that. You know, I mean, like the norm is for people to die. Right. That's why we call what happened to Lana a miracle because that doesn't normally happen. Mm -hmm. But just in the normal dying and suffering, um, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm so much more convinced now. And I'm more frustrated with, with men my age that, you know, that seem to be falling away from the faith. And, and I'm like, what? Why? I mean, wouldn't you think that the guy who's handling death all the time would be the one who's going, yeah, I mean, if God was good, then what a blah, blah, blah. I don't, I'm like, no, God is good. Why does he save anybody? Why does he ever intervene? Uh, and to me, it's not evidence that God is not good when bad stuff happens. I mean, Scripture is plain. You know, Jesus didn't say, oh, if you'll just follow me, everything's going to be candy-coated and all your prayers will be answered. And it'll, I, I mean, that's, that's never said in Scripture. I mean, it's said by some, you know, preachers, I guess. But Jesus never said that. And yet we get so bent out of shape when this stuff happens as though he didn't tell us this was going to happen. You know, so I, I I really have been agonizing lately over, you know, 
folks that I know that are falling away from the faith at this point in their life where I feel like, you know, you, you should be, you should have had enough evidence at this point, you know, uh, well, what does scripture say? Uh, faith is a substance of things. Um, how's it go? Hoped for. Hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So I, I guess if, you know, if we just saw miracle after miracle, it wouldn't be faith anymore, you know. But um, I've got a friend in Germany who is a strong evangelical. He really supported missions. He's had a very successful business. He's got a successful marriage. He's got kids that love and respect him. I mean, he's got it all. And for whatever reason, he's become an atheist. And he, he respects me, and he hates me. <laughs> you know, it's weird. It's like we have, our, we have conversations, and... You know, he's we're having a normal conversation, and then he mocks me. Mm-hmm. And um, in a recent conversation, I was like, you know, I don't have the scientific evidence for what I believe, right? Um, and you may, you may have scientific evidence that God doesn't exist. However, that would be possible, right? I said, but every time that I wheel my daughter in her wheelchair down to the altar and she receives the bread and the wine, and I see the joy of the Lord beaming from her face, I know my Redeemer lives. So there, my evidence is a disabled little girl that I pray every night she'll walk and talk and have no more seizures. And every day she has about 30 seizures. And every day she has to be diapered and fed and bathed. And everything that, that's done has to be done for her but she's the evidence that that you know Jesus is raised from the dead. So I I know that it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that you deal with death by running to death. It doesn't, you know, none of this stuff makes much sense, I guess. So well if you're looking for avoidance from suffering, Christianity is not the religion for you. No, you need to bark up another tree. I mean, Christianity <laughs> is the religion that insists that God himself took part in our suffering Mm. and made it his. So if people are, I mean, are are people looking for intellectual answers or is it more emotional or what do you think the reason why some people turn away at this particular stage in life is, is it just weariness or? Well, when I was a youth minister years ago, um, you know, the teenagers, would doubt they would have, right. they, you know, and they'd they would walk the aisle again, you know, to be baptized again for the second or third or what. And what I had been trained to say was, you know, well, did you say the prayer and did you mean it with your whole heart? You know, maybe you were holding a little piece back, or you know, mm-hmm. and that's that was actually bad advice. Get baptized ten times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know that I ever encouraged anybody to get baptized again, but it was always, you know. Did you say the prayer and did you mean it with all your heart? Well, um, and the whole time I was a youth minister, I'm doubting my salvation, Mm -hmm. right? And and, um, where that doubt was coming from was that I never really felt good enough, right? I never had really achieved that holiness or perfection or, you know. um, And it was when I started studying Scripture with Dr. Bedelford and we were going through Romans chapter 8 that I really 
it was like a salvation experience. I'm in college. I've already been a youth minister and stuff, and 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 like the light went on that I, I'm saved by faith, and that's a gift from God. I mean, I'd heard that my whole life, but it just had not sunk in. And then later, I was reading uh, "Cost of Discipleship" by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and his advice was that if you are doubting your faith. Um, 99% of the time it is because you are doing something you're not supposed to be doing or you're not doing something that you should be doing right okay. so both are sin right so um, for example you know I, I'm indulging myself in some some sin whatever it might be and then on Sunday I don't feel saved anymore well duh it's because I'm I'm indulging my flesh when I need to be denying myself, you know, uh, the pleasures of sin. Um, or, you know, I've had a clear direction from God that I need to go and be reconciled with this brother, and I just refuse to do it. And then we come time on Sunday for communion, and I don't feel saved. Well, duh. I, you know, I hate this guy. I need to. Yeah. I need to be right. Re- you know. Yeah. And that advice to me was like, yeah, that's it. That's the answer. Um, our doubt comes from disobedience, right? Only those who obey can believe, and only those who believe can obey. It was great advice. I'm not so sure that's what's going on now with with guys in their fifties, forties, okay. and fifties. Um. I want that to be the case because that's actually kind of an easy answer. Mm-hmm. You know, well, you're if you're having an affair, well, you don't feel saved. You know, well, duh. <laughs> you know, you you shouldn't feel saved if you're having an affair. Right. But I've I've I know guys who who are not, as far as I know, they're not indulging their their flesh and sin, but they're really struggling with faith. Um. So. That that leads me to think that um, you know Bonhoeffer's answer was is mostly right, but it's not always not always right. Um, and I, I so I don't I don't know what the answer is. I think that by the time you get into your forties and fifties, if you've been a believer since your teens, and and you're not disobeying God, but you have lost your faith. Um, Maybe you never had it. You know, maybe that spirit that lives in me that when I, when I'm going through some crisis, and my faith is, you know, I I cry out to the Lord, and then the other guy who's been a believer for twenty, thirty years, and he goes through the crisis and he cries out to the Lord, and he goes, he doesn't answer. You know, I, he's not listening if he's even there. I, so I guess I leave open that possibility that there's, you know, it, it's it's disobedience that causes the unbelief, but sometimes it's maybe it's something else. I don't know. I, I don't I don't know what the answer. Maybe they need to get baptized. <laughs> maybe they need to say the prayer again yeah, and mean back, it with all back their to the heart. Easy answers. Uh, yeah. yeah, I you know though. I, I, I mean, I'm just joking about that. I really probably shouldn't joke, but but I th- I think um, 
my expectation of church is very elementary now, right? Um, What I expect us to do at church is to worship God corporately, um, to give to needs around us, to uh, you know, to engage the the community around us, to uh, to receive instruction in Scripture and uh, and fellowship. And I think what we want church to be is we want church to be Jesus. And if you live five decades, you're going to find out that church ain't Jesus, right? Um, and I, I know a, a lot of folks my age who, you know, they, their testimony is they've been hurt by the church. And then after they've been hurt by the church, then they feel like they've been hurt by God. Or, or they'll say, well, you know, I've, you know, oh, Jesus and I are fine, but, you know, the church can go jump in the lake. And I'm like, you can't, that, that's not right. If you don't love the church, then you don't love Jesus. Then I mean, maybe the question is, who is the church or what is the church? Um, and I, I think we, we, we expect too much, you know, when really, it, it really should be fairly simple. I mean, we love each other. We forgive each other. We're going to sin against each other. And Bonhoeffer would say, when you know, when your brother sins against you, unjustly, right? He accuses you of something. That is when you get to be the most like Jesus, because you can you can forgive him, and you can receive the accusation, and 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 take it and go well. Okay, so he says I'm a thief. I didn't steal anything from him, but I you know I am a thief. I have stolen time from my employer or whatever. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he said, I was a liar. Well, you know, I am a liar. I didn't lie that particular time, but have I always only ever told the truth? I, I don't think anybody does. So so Bonhoeffer says when that that person accuses you unjustly, then, then you get to forgive them like Jesus forgives because Jesus had done no wrong. And you also get to receive that um, as truth. That though you may not have done, you know, fill in the blank, you have at some point in your life, you know. So, um, I don't know. It seems like I'm not making any sense right now. I'm <laughs> kind of going around. Well, I've got, I've got an idea in my head that I haven't thought of until now. It's, okay. It's funny how sometimes ideas don't come until you're in dialogue with another person. Yeah, it's, right. Yeah, sometimes you think of things that you never would have thought of on your own. So feel free to completely shoot this down if this sounds completely wrong to you. <laughs> when when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's dying, mm. you know, God taking on our suffering, one of the things he says, according to the Gospels, is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So mm. regardless of, you know, what what kind of nuanced what nuanced theology might say about what that means, who knows what that means, you can at least say that in taking on our suffering and feeling our suffering, Jesus felt what it was like to wonder where God was. You know, that Mm. was part of what he felt on the cross. That was part of the suffering. So, you know, if if we're called to be Christian, called to be Christ-like, called to follow him, maybe, and again, this uh, this could be completely wrong, but maybe part of following Christ includes 
feeling that abandonment. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's part of what it means to suffer with Christ and join him on the cross. Um, you know, we're called to forgive in our suffering. Maybe the other part of Christ's suffering, we're also supposed to take part in somehow. And maybe, maybe feeling that loneliness is part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of, of the book of Job, you know, that's not a prosperity gospel kind of story. <laughs> that's, you know, yeah. there's a lot of feeling abandoned by God mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's just it. That's just part of the story. I, I, I want to say the hopeful part of that is that, you know, in the end, uh, Jesus was not forsaken on right. the cross, right? In the end, Job was not forsaken. Um, and I, I mean, I've been speaking in years, four years, sorry, about the ministry in Ethiopia and about our disappointment with, you know, discovering that Lauren had brain injury. And um, and I've, I've said for years, you know, um, it's okay to, to ask God, are you there? Mm-hmm. It's okay to say, you know, I'm, I'm really mad at you right now. I don't understand. Uh, you know, it's, it's foolish to have those feelings and not voice those to God. It's like we can hide from God, right, um, just because I didn't say it. I mean, I don't think we need to become the prophets of unbelief either. I'm mean, like right. shouting it from the you know mountaintops. Right. I don't believe you know right. that would be a mistake. But um, I think I think you're absolutely right that it it is the common experience of the Christian at some point in their life to feel abandoned. Yeah, um, I think about this missionary friend of mine who um, has really struggled with her health her whole life. And at one point was in the hospital and she was in a coma, right? She couldn't open her eyes. She could not even move a finger. So she's, she's, but she hears everything that's going on in the room. And she said, it's like she wanted to scream. I I can hear you, you know, and people would come in and they would go, oh, that's so sad. She was such a good missionary. And now she can't even lift a finger. She doesn't even know we're here. Bless her heart, you know, and. And she said she was just laying there, and she was thinking, "Yeah, they're right. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I've been abandoned. And after all I've done, you know, I mean, she had she had really given her all on the thir- in a third world country, and now here she is in a hospital bed, and she's just laying there, conscious, but unable to respond. And she said that in that moment of abandonment." that God spoke to her and said, if you can just lay there in that bed and love me, that'll be the greatest work you'll ever do in your life. And she said it, it, it was, um, it transformed that, that moment of suffering and abandonment to, to say it, it is just me and Jesus, right? Um, so I, so I think with without those kind of moments, maybe we don't ever really get what it means to be in Christ and to be in relationship with Him. If if you never felt the absence, you know, could you really ever enjoy the presence? I, I yeah. Well, I that's know. that's why the 
whole prosperity gospel thing is so diabolical because it's it says the opposite. You yeah. know, it says as long as you're following Jesus, he'll give you cars and houses and stuff. And, <laughs> and good health. Yeah, and, and good health. And yeah, yeah that n- nowhere is that promised. It's not there. No. Um, to quote, you, you mentioned Bonhoeffer. He has this quote about when Christ calls someone, he bids him come and die. Yeah. And there's something very real about that. Well, I, what was said of Bonhoeffer, right? He, he dies a political prisoner of, of Hitler, right? He's, he, is, um, um, he is terminated before the end of the war. Mm-hmm. And he goes... Right before the end of the war, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, they like already... days before? Oh, they already knew they were losing, okay. but they wanted to go ahead and kill these political prisoners because they, you know, go ahead and yeah. get your last jabs in. And what was said of him as, as he was on his way to the gallows um, is that his concern was for his fellow prisoners, that they not be disheartened. And, um, and one man who, who was not a Christian said that he had never met a man whose God was so real to him. Mm. You know, I can't help but wonder, would that have ever been said about Bonhoeffer if he had not been in prison? if he had not been on his way to the gallows, you know, I mean, he would have been a great pastor, but if he had survived World War II, you know, but would would anybody have said of him, you know, look, if anybody believes, that man believes, you know. So, but I don't think we need to fake it either. I mean, right. if, if, you, right. if you don't believe, I don't think you need to, you know, fake it till you make it. That's, that's terrible advice. I think you need to be honest. I, I, you know, hey, maybe I'm really struggling right now. Uh, I think it's it's when we pretend like everything is okay, that's that's when the enemy wins, you know, and we don't really ever get to, uh, I don't know, really move through that abandonment feeling or that suffering. Or, mm-hmm. I mean, Scripture says that we make up in our bodies what's lacking in the suffering of Christ. What in the world does that mean? Yeah. I mean, at, at, at the very elementary level, it means we're going to suffer. I mean, right. that is, but how do we make up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? How could God lack anything? And is it he hasn't suffered enough yet? That's a bizarre thought that, that God must suffer. And by following Christ, we are making up for that lack of suffering that's just well, also, bizarre. I mean, along those same lines, the the writers of the New Testament insist that the church is the the physical body of Jesus. Mm-hmm. We we are the body of Christ. Yeah. Well, it's the body of Jesus that was tortured on the cross. Yeah. So there's there's no getting away from it. Yeah. Exactly. And I feel like I need to give a disclaimer here. We we actually don't intend for every episode of this podcast to end up talking about God. It just kind of happens. <laughs> it's So, you know, our qualification for the things that we talk about here and the people that we bring on is, is, is exploring what people care about. Yeah. And if you're going to talk with someone for an hour and a half, you end up talking about deeply meaningful things mm. and you get past the superficial pretty quickly. Yeah. So... All that to say, I appreciate your honesty when talking about this stuff. Um, this is this is the beauty of 
sitting down for a conversation that goes well over an hour is this kind of stuff is what comes out of it. You know, you don't talk about the weather for an hour and a half. So (laughs) that would be true. Yeah. So, um, so your wife is doing well now. She is. She's totally okay. Better than okay. And you said she doesn't remember a whole lot of that whole experience. No, but, um, but it changed her. Right. Like, okay. So what, what she remembers is we had been on vacation and um, it was a great restful vo- vacation. And um, she doesn't remember the ride home. She doesn't remember the day before her cardiac arrest. She obviously doesn't remember the cardiac arrest. Um, she just remembers being um, leaving the beach right, and waking up in a hospital. Um, that's all she remembers. So she says it's almost like it's not her story. It's like it's, it's my story and my kid's story. Um, you know, it deeply affected us, uh, and changed us. I, I, I don't know if it's possible for your personality to change, but I, I, I think my personality changed, right? Um, my kids, um, have each had varying levels of, of um, need to talk and, um, you know, um, process that whole event. Um, but even though my wife doesn't remember, like, the physical suffering, she, I mean, she remembers being in the hospital and having to kind of learn to walk again kind of a thing, you know, after being in the bed for a couple of weeks, you have to, you know, and plus she had some uh, internal bleeding into her legs. So, you know, she remembers that. You yeah. know, she remembers that pain. She doesn't remember the, the most traumatic part for us, right? But I, I like to explain it by saying that before the cardiac arrest, if it's a pretty day and I would roll the windows down in the car, she would say, roll the windows up, you're going to mess my hair up, right? Since the cardiac arrest, if it's a pretty day and I roll the windows down, she lets the wind blow through her hair. Hmm. Uh, and to me, that's, that's probably the best illustration for how it changed her. Um, you know, how, how it changed me, um, I, I mean, other than, you know, volunteering with the fire department and being a medical responder, um, I, th- I think it, it, I used to be an extrovert. I think I've become an introvert, if that's even possible. Um, So I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I mean, as a former extrovert, (laughs) I used to think that, you know, God wants everybody to be an extrovert. (laughs) So now that I'm more introverted, it's like, um, you know... I don't know. Maybe I think less of myself. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just joking well, there because I, I know you're an introvert, Connor. <laughs> very much, very much an introvert. <laughs> but now my kids, um, you know, I I really I don't know how it's changed each of them, um, but I know it it has changed us, and mm. and I want to say that even though I don't know the specifics of how we've been changed, that it's actually, it's actually been an overall net increase. I mean, like a good change. 
positive right. change. Yeah, positive. Yeah. Um, in some ways, I feel like we're handicapped. You know, like, um, I mean, we just so realize, you know, how fragile life is. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I, I, I may be maybe too much on that that end of the spectrum now say like for example um you know when when something happened like my my wife's mother um had to have emergency surgery a few weeks ago and um i was trying to make arrangements for you know who was going to take care of lauren you know our disabled daughter and how are we going to get down to the hospital and i was stressing about all this stuff and and i and I, I really kind of went overboard, especially with one of my kids, because I was wanting her to just, you know, look, we've got to take care of this. This is most important. And she had other plans. And and um, I was so inflexible. because And, and um, I think I even said something like, well, you know, well, you know the worst could happen. And if the worst happens, we need to be prepared, right? Mm. And I realized in hindsight, oh, I think I'd. I'm doing that because of what happened to Lana five years ago. I mean, I've always been like a, you know, I've, I always carry a knife and a handkerchief and I'm always prepared. I was a Boy Scout, right? But I, I think I think now I'm, I've that's ramped up and maybe not a good way, right? Um, but some of the good things that have happened have been, um, and this is probably going to sound terrible, but... Um, you know, like our whole married life, my, my wife and I have been married for 30, over 30 years now. And for that 25 years leading up to that cardiac arrest, um, I, would, um, I would sometimes question myself, you know, do I, do I really love my wife? And I don't mean like, you know, um, superficial. I mean, do I really love her? And do I really, do I really give of myself for her do i do i prefer her do uh do i love her like christ loves the church and and i would have probably said 25 years ago i i don't think i i don't think i do not not the way i'm supposed to i mean i loved her you know if but um i would i would get irritated with her easily you know and things like that and i told her that um the night that she had the cardiac arrest and, um, you know, then that whole next day was just like a blur. But that first night at home alone with her in a coma and her chances of survival were like 30 percent. That's what they and and the neurologist neurologist had said, even if she does survive, she may not know who you are, you know, mm-hmm. and um, that night um, I didn't. I didn't try to bargain with God. I didn't, uh, um, I just cried out and I said, I, I can't do this. You know, um, I, I really, I really need her. Um, you know, and, and, um, anyway, um, after she got home from the hospital and had survived and everything was okay, um, I said, you know, this may hurt your feelings and I don't mean to, so don't take it the wrong way. But what I learned the night of her cardiac arrest was that I really did love her. 
Um, because when I woke up and she was dead, um, I would have given, I would have given my life to raise her from the dead. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have done anything to get her to breathe again. Um, it's like I didn't even, it, I didn't even think about it. It wasn't like, oh well, you know, she's she's dead, so I guess I'll have to get another wife. Or you know, it was it was whatever I've got to do. I've got to I've got to reverse this situation, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, I I hope you understand what I'm saying. I mean, I I really really love you. Um, and she said, Well, yeah. I mean, I really really love you too, because I wouldn't be here, you know. So ever since then, she's called me um, uh, Captain America because Superman can fly, right? And I can't fly, so I'm Captain America now. Since then, or Mister Incredible, actually. I think it was one of the two, Mr. Incredible or Captain America. Maybe well, Captain both. America is the best one out of all of them anyway. Is, you know, I, I think yeah. I'm Mr. Incredible Captain America. Okay, that's, that's pretty what good. I, <laughs> that's pretty good. You got a two in one. But I, I don't think I would have ever really understood how much I do love her. That makes sense. If I had not lost her yeah. for just a little bit there. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I'm, I'm really tracking with you because I had not nearly in – such dramatic circumstances, but I had a similar experience with my wife during the process of being engaged. We had a really difficult time of engagement Mm -hmm. and I realized that the only chance that I had of salvaging the relationship was to take the ring back for a time. Mm. And, uh, yeah. So I, on, on a smaller scale, I, I went through something similar realizing how much I loved her through losing her for a yeah. short while. So, yeah. Macklin and I were talking about this on a different episode. Actually, I think it was the last one we did and we recorded up at the cabin, but we don't, we don't realize what the, these parts of our hearts, we don't realize what they are until they're tested and until they're either taken from us or almost taken from us. And yeah. at the time we were talking about integrity and morality, you know, we don't, mm-hmm. we don't realize what our morality is until it's tested, but it's also true of relationships. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, that's, it's why we really, we really do need crises and, and, and doubt. abandonment. And yeah. all, I mean, um, it, it hurts, it hurts me for others who, you know they go through that, and their their faith seems to be shipwrecked by it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I grieve um, for that. I, I Walton has said um, that Walton's the guy who discipled me from college on. We're friends. I want to get him on this years. podcast at some oh, point. Oh, he'd be a great guest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He he has said uh, you know the difference is that the um, is having the spirit of God. You either do or you don't, and if you have the spirit of God, um, you will on um, you will come through. It, it, you may not look like it today; <laughs> it may be a while, but you know. Yeah. But in the end, Job was justified. You know, in the end, Jesus was justified. I mean, yeah. You know, if if you could say that, I, that's probably some theologian's going to slam me for that. Jesus was justified, <laughs> but. Um, you know, he was not ultimately abandoned. Right. And he won for himself a bride, you know. And I, I think, you know, 
it's it's a really uh, normal feeling to feel like we've been abandoned. I mean, if you get to looking around, I just saw today another, I don't know, 100 folks in Mali were killed just for being Christian, and it's like, wow, that kind of looks like God just forsook them, you know. But um, that's not the case. But it takes faith to believe that because the evidence that we have is that, you know, God did abandon them. That's the evidence you've got. But really, there's greater evidence, and that's the faith of the folks who still survived it, and they're praising Jesus. And it's like, how could you do that? Well, that's because they have the Spirit of God. Mm-hmm. You know, So if they've got it, they've got it. If they don't, they don't. It doesn't mean that you won't ever doubt. It doesn't mean that you won't ever struggle. But you, you will, in the end, you know, be redeemed. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if you've got if you've got a campfire before the before the embers can really burn hot and the flame turns blue, the whole thing has to collapse. Yeah. Right? That's you know, right. Things yeah. have to gather at the bottom and settle mm-hmm. and the fire looks like it's almost dead and yeah. then it comes back hotter because of that collapse. That you know, I'll go to Scotland on a fairly regular basis to work with churches there and if you want an example of a dying church, right? Okay. If you want to know what that looks like, go to Scotland. The Church of Scotland, 20 years ago, um, just uh, you know, the survey of Scottish folks, 65% of Scottish folks identified as Christian. And the vast majority of those people were Church of Scotland, right? Okay. They're members of the Church of Scotland. 20 years later, 65% of Scottish folk identify as atheist, agnostic, non-religious. So, I mean, it has completely flipped, right? And the average Church of Scotland, I'm not talking about in Edinburgh and Glasgow and the cities. I mean, you'd get the impression that things are just fine. Thank you very much. You know, you go out to the countryside uh, to a place like Whithorn, Scotland, and there's a, a church that used to be a cathedral, and uh, it's been downsized now to fit, you know, it probably would have held uh, three or 400 people, maybe. And there's 50 faithful folks, you know, gathering in that little congregation. Um, now, those 50 folks are the real deal. I mean, why else would you go to church when everybody else is yeah. doing something completely different on Sunday mornings? Yeah. Those 50 folks are gathering and they they feel like they may be the last, right? Um, that church that's been there since about 650 A.D., this may be the last of that. It may be about to just completely collapse. And I was speaking with uh, the pastor of the church in Wigtown, which is a very similar situation. It's a bit, bit larger congregation, but declining. Um, they don't like to use the word death, who does? But decline is, that's a better word, it's more palatable, I guess. Mm-hmm. But he gave that, not that same example, but the same idea. And he said, you know, um, God is a God of resurrection. And he said, uh, Church of Scotland appears to be dying, right? It, it is definitely in decline, 
But what happens when the seed goes to the ground? Mm. And he said, you know, Patrick, I might just live to see what comes next. And that's pretty exciting. It's new life, you know, and I'm like, that, wow, that is such a great um, perspective on it. I mean, we're a resurrection people. Um, you know, my my wife didn't just look dead. She was clinically dead, but she wasn't dead dead, right? And um, the church in Scotland and even in parts of the United States may look like it's dying. It, it, and it, And, you know, if you don't, do something. It, it may go from clinical death to dead, dead, you know. But I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it. I've, I've, I've seen my wife go from clinically dead to fully alive. And if, if God can do that with a human being, right, can God do that with a church? Can, can a church be clinically dead? I mean, no heartbeat and not breathing and be resurrected. I mean that's easier than dead dead resurrection I guess but but I I think so and I'm and and it's going to be different it's going to be changed right um Lana used to not want me to roll the windows down on a pretty day now she'll let me roll the windows down and let the wind go through her hair so whatever the church is you know however that's manifested and it's dying mm-hmm. If it gets resurrected, it's time to roll the windows down, let the wind blow through our hair. You know, that's pretty exciting, actually. Yeah, yeah. What does that mean? I don't know, but we might live to see it. It's awesome. <laughs> so, one of the things I wanted to ask you um, while I had you on was: Have you had any uh, experiences as a missionary? Because you were a missionary for how many years? Uh, well, let's see. We started IOI in 99, but actually we moved to Ethiopia in 97. 97. Okay. So you've, so you've lived I'm in multiple countries yeah. and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and the organization has, has spread to how many continents? I mean, well, we we're in Ethiopia, Togo, Brazil, and then of course we've got partners in the United Kingdom. Yeah. So have you had any experiences along the way there that have, also shaped your personality or impacted you in a particularly profound way? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's hard to, you know, after 20 years of just Ethiopia, you know, I, um, yeah. um, it starts to all kind of blend together, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, um, well, this, like, this story that we've been talking about with your wife's cardiac arrest, I mean, that was, mm-hmm. that was right on the tail end of, your time as director, is that right, of the missions organization? Well, I still was officially the director until about um, maybe two years ago now. Okay. When I So I, you were still director at the time? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and we were in the middle of a farm project that I okay. was heading up, and uh, it was it was a kind of a grandiose scheme, um, which I thought was completely, and still believe is completely possible. Um, but we had just spent so much time and resource on trying to get this commercial farming business going. Um, and I was so discouraged um, because of, of, at the time, the corruption in the local government was just um, uh, crippling, you know. Um, 
And we refuse to pay any bribes. We never paid a penny in bribes. And as a consequence, we don't have a farm in Africa. <laughs> right? So, okay. um, so that, I think that that project failing um, w- made a huge impact on me. Okay. You know, um, and um, when we finally pulled the plug on that project, it was kind of the last thing I did as executive director was to pull the plug on the farm project. The whole idea of the farm project was to try to fund um, a rural theological training program, right? Um, what we could have done at the at the farm would have provided jobs for the people who worked in the farm. It would have provided a training center, but it also would have provided the funding needed to go out into the villages and do seminary, basically, out in the villages. Um, and... Um, when we sold the farm, we actually got our capital back out of the farm. And one of the crazy things about Ethiopia is that um, SUVs are outrageously expensive. Um, we we were able to acquire um, a uh, about a ten year old Toyota hardtop SUV which, in very very good condition for about sixty five thousand dollars or something like that. Okay, and. Um, we were able to do that because we got our money back out of the farm. And then that SUV um, has been the vehicle that they've used to go out into the countryside and do this training program. And uh, just last year, um, we had the first class of through the two-year program um, graduate. And it was about 50, 60 students that graduated. And now those students, because of the quality of the program, some of them are going on to actually get not just a diploma uh, or not just a certificate, but an actual diploma. There's a seminary in Ethiopia that's partnered with us. And uh, so here's these rural theological, I mean, these rural pastors that are actually getting seminary-level seminary training. Mm-hmm. And in part, it's because that farm took so long and required so much capital, and then we sold it that we were able, able to actually fund, you know, the the purchase of the vehicle that was required. And, you know, so God redeemed it, but I still, I was depressed. I mean, I, I like probably clinically depressed over it because it was the first like really major failure. Um, and I don't like to fail. <laughs> you know, it's not, failure is not good for me, right? <laughs> so, um, so after that, I, I really didn't feel competent anymore to be the director. I felt like, you know, if if I stayed the director of the organization, that I would just drag the organization down. It was time for, you know, young blood. And Stephen Kennedy had been with the ministry since almost the beginning and had, had grown up with IOI. And he was in his 30s, and I was about 30 when, a matter of fact, I was 30 when I started IOI. Or in my thirties, so you know he he um, he's not um, so much a visionary as he is a doer, and so I'm like that's what the ministry needs right now. It doesn't need any more vision, or I'm going to kill it, you know. And um, so I stepped back, and I really my my hope was to retire from IOI and just do something different. I didn't really care what, just something different. I was burnt out. I'd failed. I realized I was a detriment to the ministry, you know. And Stephen encouraged me to stay on 
with the ministry for a year to give him time to transition because he and his wife were living in Ethiopia and they had had to move back to America to care for her mom uh, who was dying of cancer. And, um, you know, so it, it just seemed like it, this was all kind of the providence of God working out. But I did agree to stay on and help with that transition. So I went from being the director to being the president, which actually kind of sounds like a a promotion. But uh, with IOI, the president is, is a board position, and it's more of an oversight mm-hmm. rather than a casting vision or actual directing, you know. Um, and Dr. Pedelford, who had been the president, had retired. And so it just kind of, it all seemed to kind of fall in place at the right time. So um, I transitioned into president. Stephen transitioned into executive director. And then over that year, his first year of being the executive director, um, I really wanted to pastor. So I had my resume out, like all over the country, looking to pastor a failing church because I, I figured if the church was failing, you know, how bad could I be <laughs> as a pastor? I mean, you know, if a church recognizes they're dying and they're desperate enough to hire me as their pastor, then, you know, God might do something. Who knows? And um, the churches that I was approaching, um, uh, there was one church particularly that was just heavy on my heart, and they would not even talk to me, and I don't blame them. But, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, so at the end of that year, I was still not pastoring. Um, and Stephen and I sat down, and he said, look, I have an idea. I hate being the executive director, okay? Um, and he said, there's certain things that you're good at. And there's certain things that I'm good at. And there's certain things that Russ is good at. Russ is our financial director. And Anna Worley has our child care project, and she's doing a great job with that. So what if we just do away with all these titles and we just together, uh, kind of like a, a board of elders, um, everybody operates in the ministry in their giftings. Mm-hmm. And we forget about the corporate model and just uh, do what we think the church should do, right? Not have one go-to guy, but have a plurality of pastors, have a plurality of elders or whatever word you want to fill in there, a a group that that actually together shares the responsibility of oversight and shepherding and instruction and all of that. Why don't we do what we think the church should do within IOI? And we're actually now in the process of doing that. Because we're a legal corporation, uh, we are incorporated in the state of Tennessee, um, we still have to have a president a treasurer and a secretary. I think by law we have to have those positions. But um, that's more of a formality for the state. But how we actually operate day to day, what would that look like if we each just focused on the things that we're, we're gifted in? So I'm focusing now primarily on uh, speaking on behalf of the ministry, um, on doing the uh, media work, which I'm praying that God will send a media person to us. <laughs> to do that. Um, I can do it, but um, um, I think there are other people who are more gifted at it, and I'd love to see them empowered to do that. Um, but then I also am focusing on our volunteers. 
Um, so um, taking teams to Ethiopia, taking teams to Brazil, and uh, taking a, a tour to Scotland, um, those are the things that I, I really get joy from. It's the things I'm really good at. Um, and and um, that's been transformative for me personally, and I think it has been for the ministry too, that you know, Stephen actually is a visionary, you know, just not the way I was a visionary, you know. Um, he has the vision to see um, that we all need to be thriving. I mean, the whole idea behind indigenous outreach was to help poor native ministers thrive, right? And he said, if that's what we're doing, if that's our ambition overseas is to help ministers thrive, then we need to be thriving too, you know, and not in some kind of a prosperity, you know, um, crazy idea, but, but, you know, to really function within our giftings and really thrive. And, and Jesus said he came that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly. So we've talked about suffering. Absolutely, that is part of it. But we're also supposed to thrive. I mean, I, I'm supposed to get joy from my work. I'm supposed to get joy from my spouse. I'm supposed to get joy from my food. I mean, the, these are the ecclesiastical blessings that God bestows. And if you if you're getting joy from what you from your labor, and you're you've got a joyful home, and you know you you enjoy your food, that's that's as good as it gets. You know, I mean, because you know the suffering's coming. There's no doubt the suffering's coming. But if you can enjoy those three things, um, you're a blessed man. And I feel like really just within the last year that I've kind of come out of a tunnel or something or, or, or actually, no, this is a better example. Okay. All right. I'm in Ethiopia out in the countryside. And I, I, I prefer staying in hotels, right? But in Ethiopia and the countryside, we, we sleep on, you know, dirt floors, Right. And we use not an outhouse, but a pit latrine. For those of you who don't know what a pit latrine is, it's a hole in the ground. It doesn't ground. sound good, whatever it is. <laughs> it's a hole in the ground with sticks laid across it. And then somebody cuts a hole in those sticks, and you squat over that hole and aim. And some people have terrible aim, right? There's no walls. There's no ceiling. So I try to do my business in the evening, mm-hmm. just so I don't attract so much attention, right? And... <laughs> I wake up in the middle of the night in Ethiopia. It's rainy season, so it's raining. And my stomach is toe up. So I got to the pit latrine. And we've joked for years about falling in, right? Oh, no. I just gave it away, didn't I? <laughs> so I get out the, over these sticks, <laughs> trying to keep the rain off my head, right? On my big wide brim hat pull my pants down, start to squat, and just as I squat, and the floor is collapsing, and I lunge for the, you know, for the mud, Uh and splat right in that nasty mud on the edge of the pit latrine, and my waterproof boots, thank God for waterproof boots, are submerged, but the rest of my body is spared. And as I climb out of the pit latrine, a dog comes out of the bushes 
and, and you don't want to be bit by a dog in Ethiopia because uh-huh. that's like, you know, you're going to get rabies, right? Yeah. And so I've got a flashlight I'm trying to collect, I'm trying to pull my pants up with my muddy arms. <laughs> and this dog is, and it was, it was terrible. Uh-huh. Um, so if anybody wants to give to fund outhouses in Ethiopia, um, now would be a good time. Yeah, Just yeah. Uh, log on to IOIUSA.org, <laughs> right? So I go back in the church, and the guy sits straight up, and he goes, Brother, did you fall in? And I said, What's it look like, Nagash? And this man who has discipled me for 20 years, he's been like a father to me, mm-hmm. literally rolled in the floor laughing. All right? But then... He gets up and gets these Clorox wipe things and starts literally cleaning me with Clorox wipes. <laughs> this is so sweet, right? You know? Anyway, all of that to say, I feel like in the last year, really, I've climbed, I've crawled out of the pit latrine. Mm-hmm. And it took a while to get back in to the church. You know? I mean, like, literally, I, I, I was so... Uh, discouraged about church. I was discouraged about ministry. I was discouraged about life. And I mean, and yet I've got all this stuff going on. And really, I think only in the last year have has the the Clorox wipes have been applied. And I, and I feel like I'm I feel like I'm back. You know, I feel like I'm I feel like I got all that stuff off. <laughs> so, do you have any? Uh, advice or encouragement for people who feel like they're still in the pit? Oh. Uh, well, I, I mean, it sounds... Or maybe sounds, who feel like they've just fallen in. Yeah, maybe better for the folks who've just fallen in uh, because I, I, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be cliche, you know, or say right. some cheesy something. But... Um, I don't know. I... I I, you know, I heard the podcast with Brian, yeah, um, and he said, you know, the older I get, the more questions I have. It seems like I, I don't have more answers; I have more questions. Um, and I, I, I almost feel like the older I get, I, I, I don't have more answers, and I, I don't have more questions. <laughs> hmm. anyway, you know, yeah, it's it's almost like I've I've uh, I've come to a place of peace of. You know, well, this is who I am, and this is who the church is, and this is what we're supposed to be doing here. And we just hang on until Jesus comes back. You know, in the meantime, there, it's it's great to expect that we're going to see life from death. Um, understanding we may not see it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. I, there's some folks may not ever get out of the pit latrine. Um, but that 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 doesn't mean that doesn't mean that um, that they've been abandoned to the pit latrine, you know. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I, yeah. I I wish I had some kind of a uh, of a of an answer where I could say, well, you know, you follow step A and B and it. But um, I I think maybe what 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 I did, huh? Or how God brought me through this was that um, he gave me um, a wife that respects me even though I don't deserve it but she respects me because I'm her husband Um, 
he gave me kids that um, that still come for me, come to me for advice, even though I don't even have advice for myself, you know. And uh, he gave me fathers in the faith, like Walton and Nagash, and even my own, like my real dad. Um, and he gave me brothers like Stephen um, and Russ that know my bad stuff. And, um, and I, I mean, um, Stephen has felt like it's, it's part of his ministry um, to, to uh, keep me from going all the way into the pit latrine, you know. Hmm. I, and I, I feel like he's, he's a blessing from God. All of these people are blessings from God to me. Um, God has surrounded me by people that that have uh, wept with me over these last few years, um, and maybe I don't know that I I don't know that I had any control over my response to those people or not. I don't know, you know, but I just know that they were there, and um, and that's that's. It, it was um, the love of a lot of people um, that got me out of that pit. Um, for example, when I had to go home the first time from the hospital after Lana's cardiac arrest, um, I was so focused on Lana and my girls that I really was oblivious to what was going on Um in social media or, you know, who cares? I didn't care anything about what was going on outside of the immediate, right? Yeah. So I had to go home, take a shower, try to get a little bit of rest, and then go back to the hospital and take my girls to visit their mom while she was still alive, even though she was in a coma. And I told my girls... Look, I want you to tell your mommy everything that's on your heart. Because, you know, the doctors say the last sense that you lose is hearing, right? Hmm. I don't know if that's just something people say or not. But the missionary that was laying in a coma, she could still hear what was going on. So it's possible that your mom can hear us, right? So you tell her everything that's on your heart. But when we leave... Don't tell her goodbye. Mm. Okay? Just don't do that. Just tell her goodnight, but don't tell her goodbye. So that was the situation. Um, I'm taking my girls to tell their mother goodnight. All right? And um, when the elevator got to the second floor where ICU is, the doors opened, and that hallway was Full of people. Um, there were people there um, from our family, of course. There were people there from our former church. There were people there from our current church. Um, there were people there um, from other churches. Um, I, di- I didn't count heads, but it was like, I know there were at least 70, 80 people in that hallway. And nobody said anything. Yeah, they were just there, and uh, you know we want to fix stuff. And I'm I'm an, I'm an EMR, right? I'm trained to fix stuff, 
But what Scripture says is that we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. That's the command of Scripture. It's not fix it. It's not make them better. It's weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And those folks, along with, I found out later, hundreds of people around the world were weeping with us. And I don't remember anybody giving me a, like a, oh, just keep your chin up, Brother Patrick. Or, you know, I, I don't remember any of that. I just remember people weeping with us. And um, there was one man in that waiting room that was not related. He was not part of the party, right? And he was seated next to my father. And he says to my dad, are, are all these people here for just one person? And my dad said, yeah. And he said, man, she must be famous. And he said, oh, she's not famous, but she is special. (laughs) (laughs) And so maybe there's the key right there, Connor. Um, How did I I get out of the... The The pit of despair. You know, um, God just surrounded me by faithful people that had hope when I'd lost it. They had faith when I didn't really feel like I had it. Um, and maybe that's that's it. I mean, that's all there is to it. It's um, Yeah. So don't resign yourself to being alone? That's the worst thing you could do. And now as a um, converted introvert... <laughs> <laughs> it's not so bad, is it? Ah. Uh, I appreciate being alone. Yeah. But we don't need to stay alone. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, now 5 years ago, if I had a choice between being in a room full of people or being out on the back porch by myself, mm-hmm. I would have chosen the room full of people. Now, if I have a choice between a room full of people or being on the back porch by myself, I want to be on the back porch by myself. Yeah. Um and um that's a good place to be. We need to be alone. But um, but we also need to be part of the community, as screwed up as it is, as messed up as it is, as imperfect as it is, as much as they hurt us. You know, it, it's we need to be a part of that body of Christ. And um, I don't think there's any hope if you try to do it by yourself. Not really. Well, to quote Bonhoeffer yet again, he keeps getting kind of sprinkled throughout this. <laughs> he yeah. has this dual this this dual quote. Let him who, what is it, cannot be alone, beware of community. And then the the reverse is also true. Yeah. Let him who cannot be in community beware of being alone. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Was that Life Together? That's Life Together, yeah. <laughs> I thought that, so. That is one of probably the five books that have influenced me the most. It's, yeah. Yes, that one. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a recurring book in our small little church community and so I've kind of grown up with it and it's really yeah it's really uh been absorbed into my spirit I think so yeah yeah um we're gonna have to close up shop in just a few minutes any other stories you want to tell or any any way that you want to close this out in particular I hadn't really thought about it okay that's (laughs) that's terrible isn't it See, I'm, that's why I'm not a good fundraiser. I don't know how to go for the clothes. I, I never have. Matter of fact, I tell people, don't give. 
Well, that's what makes you a good God. used car salesman, right? Because people trust you. <laughs> I am also a used car salesman. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, if you went for the clothes, people would uh, not trust you anymore. <laughs> they say there's a fine line between a Baptist preacher and a car salesman, and I dance on that line yeah, you're on, on a weekly line. basis. <laughs> well, this has been great. Yeah, thank you, Connor. Thanks so much for being on. Yeah, I appreciate it. I've enjoyed your podcast uh, previously, so I look forward to more. Well, yeah. you're gonna listen to yourself now, or, or I don't. I don't this know. One? This may be the first of the small town podcasts that I skip. Okay, I can't yeah. stand the sound of my voice. Okay, you know. Yeah. So well, don't be offended if I don't listen. I, I will not be offended. <laughs> well, like I said earlier, we we don't we don't plan beforehand where this will go. You know, like we, we haven't coordinated much about what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had a few questions that I wanted to ask, but I didn't tell you what those questions were. Yeah. Um, we don't we don't intend for this to always turn to spiritual issues, but somehow it does. Yeah. And I I've, I've just been struck by that over the past couple episodes that if you carve out an hour and a half just to talk, this is the kind of stuff that comes out. Yeah. Um, so it's been a real positive addition to my life because I didn't have this before Mm -hmm. Um, every week talking with someone for an hour and a half and cutting through the surface level and getting to the deep stuff. This is, this is good for me and hopefully it's good for other people as well. So yeah, yeah. it's good for an introvert to start a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's been good so far anyway. All right. Signing out. everybody. If you'd like to help us with this podcast, there are several different ways you can do that. One is to leave us a review. Another is to click subscribe. Um, You can share any episodes you particularly enjoy on social media for new listeners to hear. And also check out the show notes for where you can follow us because we'll be posting updates as this experiment continues to grow. So thanks for listening.